Good evening and welcome to take two of the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website at independent.org. We've got another fantastic show in store for you this evening, and I'm joined by co host Amma Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you and all our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. Thanks, Amba. On today's show, we'll get an update from Staten Island, where the Amazon Labor Union recently marked a milestone in its bid to unionize 5,500 workers at the JFK 8 warehouse, which would be a first for Amazon in the United States. Then we'll go to East New York, where a young protege of Charles Barron is running to fill an open state assembly seat in a special election two weeks from today. And then we'll go to the Indies' Nicholas Powers. We will discuss his latest fascinating new article on Eric Adams. But first we have a couple of updates to share from, we have a couple of updates to share from hard fought union battles here in New York city. We're going to be covering labor more tonight, but first uh, we want to touch on a couple of uh, labor battles we've uh, been covering Uh, on Friday, the 3000 member student workers of Columbia announced that they had formally approved their first-ever union contract with the university with a yes vote of more than 97%. A tentative agreement was reached with management on January 5th. The union's membership then took three weeks to review the contract and vote on it, and uh, and, and that passed with a more than 97% approval. So congratulations to the student workers uh, at Columbia. Um, also, Ambo. Uh, we want to uh, get an update from you on another bitter labor struggle that you've been closely following. Uh, the students up at uh, Colum- the student workers at Columbia that were on strike for over two months, and you've been following a strike that's been going on for more than nine months. That's right, John. I went to North Brooklyn this morning and spoke with striking Teamsters who were back on the picket line. They were stationed outside of the facility, which is on the Greenpoint Canal of the United Metropolitan Energy Corporation, and they've actually been on strike for more than nine months out there every day, um, basically the work hours of the day, demanding fair pay. And their billionaire boss, John Katsimatidis, has refused to settle with them. He's paying them $10 under the normal pay. And here's what are some of the striking workers had to say this morning. My name is Andre Solin. I'm the strike captain. I've been working here at United Metro for, from since 2014. Every day, someone is here on the line showing that there's a presence here seven days a week from uh, seven in the morning till five in the evening. Uh, The strike line here is about the activities and being here uh, present at the site. Every Tuesday morning, uh, currently from nine to 10, We uh, do chants and we have a line marching back and forth uh, every Tuesday morning. The union has a lot more advantages than just a regular job. So this fight is much bigger than us. And at this time, especially with every other union that's fighting to get something better for us. It helps because uh, uh, historically wages are low and benefits and especially long-term benefits are n- almost non-existent. 
So to fight for this initial contract, it's tough. You have to go into it advisedly and carefully, consider it and go into it as a group. But uh, it's worth it. The fight is worth it. Yeah, my name is John Thompson. Um, I've been an employee at Metro for going on eight years. Um, I work in the service department, um, um, service mechanic. Um, the reason why we went on strike is because of uh, unfair labor practice as far as the wages is concerned. We haven't got a raise from this company in over three years. And every time we get a raise, it's a quarter or 50 cent. And... That can't help us now because of the way how everything is, you know, cost of living has gone up. We haven't got a cost of living wage increase from this company. So we went on strike to protest. First, they didn't want us to have a union. Uh, We got the union, and they didn't want to negotiate with the union. So that's one of the reasons why we're on strike. Also, we needed uh, better health coverage. The health coverage that we have right now sucks. The hospital don't even take it. <laughs> uh, my name is Ivan Arizaga. I've been a terminal operator at United Metro and 500 Kingsland Avenue for five years. And I've been doing the midnight uh, inventory, working uh, from 10 o'clock at night to 7 in the morning for the last three years without night differential pay. I went on strike uh, because we want to get paid what the standard industry and we're being paid $10 below pay. I'm Dennis Spence. I'm working with United Metro for the past seven years. My job is mechanic. And tell me what it's been like now to be on strike. Well, it's hard enough. It's hard to get around, get along, no money. Got real tear like nine months now. Do you have much hope left? Not much. <laughs> but you have to keep going. You have to fight for what you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I'm out here like so five days a week, I will come in the morning. Sometimes here from seven till two, seven till three. So we voted for the union like uh, three years ago. Mm-hmm. Plus the pandemic, because we, we work all the pandemics. Mm-hmm. And all the people in the office, they work from home. We work here because we have to be physically over here. Mm. And this company don't appreciate it. You've been on strike now for nine months. That's nine months uh, since April 19. Tell me about the decision to, con- to stay on strike after nine months. I mean, uh, because we need uh, nice uh, nice benefit, nice wages. I mean, the Medicare is sucks. Anytime, anytime when you go to the doctor, you have to pay. And I have family, I have two kids and wife, there's no work anyway, so the kids are still kids. Okay. And we're still here. I used to be union before. Oh, okay, so you know that. Not here. Mm-hmm. So that's why I want to be union, because union, they protect you. And they save you whatever, they got the, some holidays pay. We don't got pay for the holidays. Okay, that was uh, Amir Gregarian out on the picket line. Uh, earlier uh, this morning with the striking workers at UMEC. Um, so, Amba, uh, what kind of uh, labor and community and elected official support are the strikers getting? And given how long this has been dragging out, what do the strikers see as their path to victory at this point? Well, 
Emily Gallagher is the assembly member in that district and she supports the strike. Um, the problem is that John Katsimatidis is, is, is the boss, the boss is a billionaire and he has a lot of, you know, friends in power. Um, the mayor dined with him this fall. Uh, we, they also have a lot of other Teamsters locals that are supporting, um, as well as solidarity from UAW SWC, which is Columbia student, uh, teachers union. And then, uh, they also have, support from Amazon Labor Union, who we're going to be talking to here in one moment. Uh, and if you all would like to support them, you could go out um, to Union United, sorry, United Energy, um, United Metropolitan Energy Corps from 10 to 11 on a Tuesday. And you can follow them on Twitter at TeamstersJC16 or NY Teamsters on Instagram to find their GoFundMe. So we're going to have to leave it there for now. Um, and go to our second segment. On January 26, the National Labor Relations Board certified that organizers with the Amazon Labor Union have gathered enough signatures at the massive JFK 8 Amazon warehouse to force a union election. This marks only the second time that workers at Amazon have managed to force a union election at their notoriously anti-union employer. Joining us now to talk about these developments and where things go from here at JFK 8 is Chris Smalls, president of the Amazon Labor Union, former worker with Amazon until he went public about their um, bad handling of the pandemic in April 2020 and was fired. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, let's jump right into it. Okay, so you are having an official National Labor Relations Board election to unionize JFK 8, which is the largest of the four warehouses that Amazon has out there on Staten Island with about 6,000 workers. So when is this gonna election going to be? And tell us about Amazon wanting it earlier and why you need it to be in April um, and your court date in April. Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, this uh, they they propose this election to have uh, expedited pretty much. They want to pretty much uh, control the election. Um, this election is scheduled for for their proposal was for March 11th, um, but we're obviously not going to fall into that rabbit hole. Um, we want to make sure that the injunction relief that we are asking for, uh, we're scheduled to go to court in April. Um, all of that is rolled out into this facility before we even come close to an election. And um, we'll we'll hash that out in court on February uh, 16. Um, I was actually just talking to my attorney about it, you know, uh, uh, when we should try to have this election, but it's ultimately up to the workers. And I believe that the, uh, the board should, should always listen to the workers. So we're never on the same even playing field as a trillion dollar company. So um, we're hoping that uh, we'll be able to have the, an election late spring, around April, and we're going to request that the board follow suit with that. Right. And, uh, Chris, uh, speaking of an uneven playing field, uh, what are some of the uh, ULPs or unfair labor practices uh, that you all have already uh, filed against Amazon for the way it's handling uh, this upcoming election out there? Oh, man. Well, we got a whole list. It's been um, – it's been quite a journey. Um, so we filed ULP for surveillance. Uh, one day security guard came out here, recorded us. Uh, we filed ULP for um, uh, Bradley Moss. Uh, um, he is a union buster. He said some racist remarks, calling us a bunch of thugs. Um, 
and we filed ULPs for the cops being called on us. Uh, one day, the police showed up, the NYPD. Um, they summoned me, and then they arrested one of our organizers, Brett Daniels. Um, uh, they also, we filed ULPs because uh, they confiscated our literature in the break room. Um, they threw away our literature in the break room um, in front of them, uh, one of the organizers. We had witnesses for that. Um, the list goes on and on, you know, it's just, it's a never a dull moment. Um, there's so many more to come. I can't even even talk about right now because we're in the process of filing them as we speak. But the, just for clarity, uh, ULPs are unfair labor practices. And um, these are these are suits that the NLRB can raise against the company uh, ultimately to um, hold them accountable and also um, find them, you know, financially. So uh, we're hoping that we'll be able to, to get some of these off the ground um, in the next couple of weeks. Right, especially those those organizers who were fired for organizing should be able to maybe get some payback um, as well as others. Uh, and for any of our listeners who are just tuning in now, an NLRB is the National Labor Relations Board, and that's kind of the court that oversees um, labor in the U.S. And so next question, Chris, uh, uh, changing gears a little bit, tell us about the support and solidarity you've had from other unions um, and, and that you've shown towards other unions, um, whether they've been officialized by the NLRB or not. Um, yeah, we uh, we show support with everybody. Uh, um, informally, we uh, we definitely support everybody that's uh, organizing, unionizing in every industry, um, all across the nation, all across the world. Um, as far as uh, on the ground, um, we had plenty of visitors uh, throughout the campaign. Um, you know, uh, the Teamsters, the UFCW members, um, they stop by, say, you know, say their spill, uh, share their experiences with us. Um, but as far as uh, the Amazon Labor Union itself, uh, we remain independent, worker-led. Um, pretty much a majority current workers. Uh, myself, I'm really much the only former Amazon worker, um, along with a couple of other volunteers that come out every so often. Um, but as far as the union's support, we definitely have um, uh, de- definitely been supported by unions uh, um, in the public. But uh, on the ground, uh, we, we definitely just kept it working led for the time being. I think everybody's dealing with their own campaigns. Um, it's so much it's so much opportunity out there right now we're organizing that um, everybody's, uh, even though we all in different industries or different buildings, locations, I think we all have the same common goal. Definitely. A lot of the unionists that, that we've been talking to in the past couple of weeks um, are of that sentiment, a lot of solidarity. Um, speaking of that and the sort of labor wave we've been seeing, what do you think about the domino effect that's happening with the Starbucks? You know, one unionizing, then another, and then another, and another. Do you hope that that'll happen um, if you guys are successful with this vote for JFK? Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Um, I- I'm loving what I'm seeing with the Starbucks. I'm loving it so much that I'm, I might even I might even uh, stop at my local Starbucks and um, and go and go uh, put them in the put them in the loop, you know, get them a part mm-hmm. of the wave. So mm-hmm. um, I encourage everybody to do the same thing, you know, let's uh, expedite this, help them out. And um, we're hoping to have the same effect with Amazon. You know, um, I can tell you now I've been talking to workers in 12 different um, states um, about organizing and, and starting their own possible possible uh, ALU chapter. So, uh, you know, we're hoping that we'll have the same domino effect once we win here in New York. So are okay. we. Right. And 
And um, before we have to go here in a couple of minutes, uh, we we have a clip from your former uh, uh, boss, uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, a longtime CEO of uh, Amazon, um, uh, speaking earlier this summer uh, when uh, he rode his uh, rocket ship into suborbital space and then uh, came back down to Earth to rejoin us mere uh, Earthlings and uh, share his thoughts on his uh, adventure. And um, I, I think we have that uh, ready to go. I want to thank uh, every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer, because you guys paid for all of this. <laughs> so seriously, for every Amazon customer out there and every Amazon employee, thank you from the bottom of my heart very much. Uh, it's very appreciated. Try to uh, uh, unionize the workforce and uh, fight for better pay and working conditions. And it's funny, you know, um, that's a major cringe moment. But, uh, you know, that day, I remember it clearly. Um, you know, we obviously took that in, um, you know, disrespectfully. And um, the, the, the crazy thing about it is while he was up there flying around, you know, we were out here uh, on the ground, literally. It was a summer day. Uh, we was out here signing workers up with this union. So um, that's how we that's how we're going to uh, pay him back. Is we're going to unionize his warehouses, and then um, you know we're going to take some of that wealth and power back, so he won't be able to have his joy rise for much longer. Um, so you know, it, it definitely resonates with us. The workers are paying attention now, um, even though workers are uh, widely dis disconnected from the outside controversy. Uh, we make it our duty to make sure that we're getting them um, the information and the controversy that's out there surrounding Amazon. Um, we have to spoon feed it to them because these workers are working 12 hour shifts. Uh, I used to work 12 hour shifts, three and a half hours each way commuting. Um, I didn't have time to come home and, you know, listen to you guys on the radio or turn in, see, turn on uh, CNN or something, you know, so we have to make sure that, that we are uh, connecting the dots and building those bridges. That is so true. Thank you. Um, can you just help us out with one thing? How can people support you? And then we're going to wrap it up here, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Uh, please support us. Uh, donate into our GoFundMe. We're a grassroots worker-led campaign. Every dollar, every penny goes towards our efforts. Um, AmazonLaborUnion.org. Um, follow us on Twitter at AmazonLabor. Uh, also Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at AmazonLaborUnion. Uh, myself right. at shut underscore down Amazon. Say that again. Uh, at shut underscore down Amazon on Twitter. Okay, thank you so much, Chris Smalls, president of Amazon Labor Union, for joining us on WBAI. Thank you. Union, for joining us on WBAI. Thank you. All right, we'll be back with more after this short break. Gets in the way, we're gonna roll right over him. We're gonna roll the union. 
the way we're gonna roll right over them we're gonna roll right over them we're gonna roll right over them if the goons get in the way we're gonna roll right over them we're gonna roll the union That was Roll the Union Roll the Union On by the Almanac Singers. I'm John Tarleton, host of the Independent News Hour here on WBAI 99.5 FM, uh, along with co-host Amba Gagarian. In our next segment, we're going to uh, look at a p- local a political race uh, happening out in uh, East New York in Assembly District 60 where that uh, assembly seat, which had been held for the previous eight years by Charles Barron, was vacated when uh, Charles Barron uh, moved to the city council at the beginning of this year. Uh, uh, Charles Barron and his wife, Inez Barron, have been a very prominent uh, political actors out in East New York, uh, operating uh, well outside of the uh, Brooklyn uh, uh, party machine and uh, pursuing their own independent politics. And now it, in that in there's a special election in Assembly District 60, which will be held two weeks from today, February 15th. And it's a showdown uh, between uh, uh, Karan Allen, who has uh, worked alongside the Barons for many years and is looking to uh, continue building on what they've created, uh, versus Nikki Lucas, who is the official choice of the Brooklyn uh, Democratic Party. And um, so we're Excited to hear more about this uh, uh, this race out in East New York. Uh, Karan Allen, welcome to WBAI. John Amber, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm very very excited to be here. Um, let, let, let's get right into it. You want me to? How yeah, you... let, let's tell us a tell us a little bit more about the political history of Assembly District 60 and why why you see this race as being so important. Um, so, at, at, as you've already said, my name is Karan Allen. I'm a candidate for New York State Assembly in the 60th Assembly District, uh, which encompasses the majority of East New York, a small piece of Brownsville, a small piece of Canarsie, and all of Starrett City. Uh, historically, the East has been independent. <laughs> for your independent news hour. Right on. The East has been independent, and it's been independent since uh, 2001 when... Uh, Council member Charles Barron first won and, and beat back the machine um, out in East Brooklyn. Um, and when you think about it, from 2001 all the way to 2022, um, here we are at a very, very critical junction in terms of a transition. Um, and for those of you who may not be hip 
and up on it. The machine is basically the Democratic Party machine um, that puts uh, profits over people, human greed over human need. Uh, they're the ones where their campaign coffers are aligned with real estate and a bunch of special interests um, and not your interests are, are, are going to be put first. Um, so that's that's what we've been traditionally up against. And historically, uh, Councilmember Charles Barron has uh, always had an opponent in any race that he's had. Um, they've li- they've all been the picks of the county and they've all lost. Um, the, most of these folks, if not all of them, all they're known for is running against the Barons. And when I say Barons, you were also talking about council member, former council member, now former council member, Inez Barron, um, who've essentially held down local politics on the city and state level in the neighborhood, uh, keeping East New York independent and away from special interests and really putting the people first. Yeah, can, can you talk a, a little bit more about what you see as the accomplishments of, of the Barons over the last 20 years and the larger movement that they've built up that you've also uh, participated in? Absolutely. So um, we, of course, don't want to get into uh, just personnel and personalities. Um, both uh, former Assembly member Charles Barron and, and former Council member Inez Barron uh, were put into office by the people. What I mean by that, um, there is a local organization out in East New York called Operation Power, People Organizing and Working for Empowerment and Respect. That's the acronym POWER. Um, and those people are local community stakeholders. We're talking about block association reps, uh, tenant associations, real people doing real things um, that corralled around uh, their candidacy and, and put together political infrastructure um, that would not only educate, but somewhat liberate, you know, get the community away from the machine and really look at, you know, what were the needs. Um, when we think about 2001 to now, gentrification is, is, is by far and, and housing is like number one in terms of what the trajectory of the community could have been and what it has actually been realized. And when we think about Assembly District 60, um, Beating back gentrification is not something that a lot of local elected officials can brag about, but that's exactly what these local electeds can brag about. Reason being, within the confines of the 60th Assembly District, um, it has remained Black. And Black, in terms of the folks that live in the neighborhood that have been here traditionally, have not been pushed out. When we think about gentrification, it is... um, the the folks within our circle would call it ethnic cleansing. You know, the, the, the community is literally stripped of what has traditionally been and, and has existed. So true, true affordable housing, affordable to the local population. Um, when we think about East New York, the local population, the area median income, neighborhood AMI is just over $34,000. It's not a lot of money. Um, and for the folks that have lived in the neighborhood, when new developments go up, they can't see themselves in it because their affordability is usually 130% of the AMI or, or some just outrageous where, where folks can't afford to live in these spaces and places. And because um, the city council seat was held by Charles Barron, Inez Barron, uh, developers have to come to their office to get their approval so that they would get support on a project. The only way you're going to get a project with a, a baron in front of you is if 
the project is properly funded towards the people. So beating back gentrification is by far like number one, um, the, the local talking point that I, I can I can pivot in terms of what they've been able to do. Others, yeah. oh, so and you others, ahead. you know, when we think about um, our local parks and playgrounds, um, when elected officials were neglecting to truly fund uh, parks and playgrounds, they be, have been able to secure, allocate, and um, yeah, secure and allocate over $70 million towards parks and playgrounds. Um, the crown jewel being Sonny Carson, some folks will know it as Linden and Gersh Park. That basically became a health hub throughout the pandemic where folks were coming in from all over to use the track, to use um, the outdoor fitness equipment, to use all of the facilities that were funded in part by their work. And then, you know, there is a, a, a cultural representation that cannot be missed um, besides the buildings of, uh, I think it's now three or four $80 million schools that have been radically transformed, uh, East New York Family Academy and a few others. Um, but the, the cultural representation in a community like ours where uh, there's an African burial ground um, that has completely, well, is, is in the process of being transfer, transformed over uh, to culturally represent the community. Uh, the park has been renamed from a cultural standpoint, removing the slaveholder name Skank Playground and changing it to Sankofa. Um, and all of this is a part of their their collective work. And there's there's more I can and run down. Us, Ron, I'm sure there's more you can tell us, but <laughs> we'd like to know how you plan to continue that legacy um, and what you'd like to address if, if you go to Albany. What would you like to continue, change anything? Absolutely. So um, first and foremost, we've already pitched how, how this is stacking up. You know, it's the, the grassroots versus the machine. That, that, that's what it is. Um, and due to the fact that uh, Mr. Barron has been in Albany for the past eight years and, and previously held by Council um, Assemblywoman Inez Barron, there's been a radical voice in the state legislature for over 10 plus years in our community. That radical voice has had a, had, had a hand in carving out what would be real wins for, local, for, for the local uh, community, whether it's, um, you know, getting cameras in, in the NYCHA developments or the Dr. Martin Luther King scholarship, uh, being able to support uh, folks' uh, students' non-tuition non, um, costs. You know, when I make it to Albany, my my hope is to continue to be a radical voice in the state legislature, but also passing radical policy that makes a difference in the lives of, of, of community members, one being single payer and making sure that everybody has access to health care. You know, while the assemblyman was the assemblyman, um, I worked at the local community board and we held a bunch of forums around um, particular issues that we would like to see passed. Single payer being one of them, having all of the seniors that we could um, muster. This is when, uh, this is pre-COVID, uh, when, when folks could just gather in a room and, and, and we could have them really, you know, take in uh, the, the, the educational, the political education that we were trying to promote. So that, of course, being one, universal um, child, uh, child care. I'm, I'm a father to a five-year-old. You know, from the time you, you, you have a child, it, it becomes very, very expensive um, for them to be taken care of, 
um, and the expensive keep the, the expenses keep coming. I, I think uh, the parents uh, that are on the call laugh at that, but it is it is a very serious thing. It could be. Our, our, our next guest has a small child just a little bit younger than than your child so ah yeah so th- this has been a- an entire ordeal um you know so th- that being another you know wanting to make sure that if uh, my son and and other community members choose to go to higher education that it's it's free for them free like it used to be uh we're talking about CUNY and SUNY these are some of the things that we want to make sure to advocate for and to realize um, and in the state legislature, of course, you have a, a bully pulpit to make sure that affordable housing is truly affordable. And on the, the state hasn't done enough to make sure that community land trusts are a part of the fabric of creating uh, true affordable housing. So these are just some of the things that I want to make sure to realize in keeping the radical voice in the state legislature and not just uh, switch up uh, subsidies that were given away to uh, developers for many, many years, um, but really switch the subsidies to the people um, where it should be and to right. really support um, all, all working class uh, folks of the state. Right. Uh, we're going to we're going to go to a, a, a clip of Charles Barron uh, speaking in a, in a moment. Um, uh, now, one thing that's interesting, when he went to Albany eight years ago, he was the only self-declared socialist in, in the state legislature. We've had a, a, a number of Democratic socialists uh, elected, uh, six uh, now in Albany. Um, uh, uh, do you envision uh, uh, being able to uh, work with the, the the other socialists that are that are up there? I mean, uh, uh, Charles Barron was sometimes known as a somewhat uh, iconoclastic figure. Yeah, I, well, I, I would say that he was also able to work with with, with some folks as well. Um, and I foresee myself working pretty pretty well with uh, the, the socialists that are already upstate, um, advocating for some of these same policies that, that would make a, a, a difference um, in whether people are just surviving or thriving. Great. And, um, yeah, so uh, we, we have a clip here from when uh, Charles Barron was in his first term in the Assembly in 2015 from an interview he did with uh, the Brooklyn 45 uh, television channel. Uh, giving his uh, take on on gentrification and its uh, causes, um, we're, we're going to take a listen and then you know I invite your uh, your thoughts as well. Gentry, they should call it regentrification. They want to come back. Remember that time when they gave us the inner cities? They said y'all could have Brooklyn, you could have Harlem. We go on to Long Island. We go into the suburbs. And then when the economic crises came and they began to have difficulties getting to their business and paying all of that oil, gas, and all of the stuff to get to their business, now they want to come back. So it's really regentrification. And the way they do it is through housing policies. Integration and diversity, those are, those are trigger words for white people wanting to come back and control our neighborhoods after we built them up and after we have them and held them down during hard times. Now they want to come back and talk about gentry. Let's not forget that. The elites, the upper class wants the neighborhoods back. Karan Allen? Yep. <laughs> you, you want reaction? Any, any additional uh, thoughts? Yeah, yeah. So... Um, so context 
in 2015, there was a rezoning plan for East New York. East New York was number one in de Blasio's, um, you know, mm, list right. of neighborhoods. Um, and the East New York is, is massive, just so everybody has context. The portion of East New York that had the most amount of land for um, where, the, where the plan was going to fall is actually just outside of the boundary of the 60th Assembly District and the 42nd Council District, where both Mr. and Mrs. Barron are worthy local leaders. So the community board, which is where I work, and at the time I was a board member, we had all voted it down. So there was so much conversation, so much education happening within the community. Everybody uh, was against this because it was clear that this was a gentrification plan, that they were um, shopping around with a bunch of frills and, you know, we're going to do your parks, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, but it's really not really going to be done for us. The plan was voted down, so that's some context on that particular clip and um, why Mr. Barron had, had taken the position that, that he did. Um, when we voted the, the plan down, Unfortunately, the council member, council member Espinal, uh, voted the plan up and the plan still passed. Right. Um, so that gentrification plan, although it falls within, um, you know, the, the neighboring district, it was, um, you know, it, it was affecting all of us. Right. Put, the, put in a plan. Right. And we, we have to wrap up here in a sec. But uh, uh, with, with your election, the election day is on February 15th two weeks from today, and, and I believe early voting runs from February 5th through the 13th? Correct, correct. You got it right. And, and then um, just real quickly, there, it, you're probably going to be running two elections because uh, you have this special election a, um, to fill the vacant seat for the rest of the, of the term of, of this year. But there's a Democratic primary in June to choose the person who will – uh, hold the seat going forward, uh, starting in 2023. So, um, I guess you're, uh, you got a bit of a marathon here. And it is a good thing that I am a runner. Um, just this past Sunday, uh, we paid homage to, we as in black men run New York city. We pay homage to Ted Corbett, um, who is the father of uh, long distance running black man. Uh, we ran 31 miles to his, um, old home. Um, but that's it. That's an aside. The special election is February 15th. I will be running on the Working Families Party line. Just got to make sure folks got that clear on the Working Families Party line. The Working Family Man on the Working Families line. Um, so folks need to understand that that election is just for the rest of this year, just for 2022. There is also a primary that we have to gear up for immediately after. I think we, we can only take one week off. And then we have to get right into petitioning uh, to get ready for that primary. So this is a marathon and looking forward to uh, hopefully earning everyone's support all the way through the special to be your assembly member to close out the rest of this year and to also to be your assembly member in the foreseeable future. Okay, well, uh, Karan Allen, thank you so much for joining us this evening on uh, WBAI Radio. Thank you. Okay. Um, We'll continue to follow us this race, and uh, we'll be back after a short break. We'll be talking with the Indies, Nicholas Powers, who has a really uh, a fascinating piece uh, on uh, Eric Adams and uh, the beginning of his uh, uh, mayorality. And, uh, um, yeah, we look forward to talking with Nick in a minute.
That was Stand By by Sly and the Family Stone. I'm John Tarleton, a host of the Independent News Hour, here with uh, uh, co-host Amba Gagarian and uh, on uh, WBAI 99.5 FM, your community radio station here in New York. And uh, we wrapped up our uh, emergency fund drive for the Tower Fund yesterday here at WBAI, raised uh, more than $65,000 that will help keep that uh, antenna and transmitter up on the top of four times square. I just want to thank everybody who gave generously during the fund drive, who gave while uh, listening to this show and shouted us out when you, you gave or if you gave uh, in the name of other shows, thank you so much for supporting community radio here in New York, this unique radio station with all the diverse programming. So now we turn in our final segment, uh, President Joe Biden will travel to New York City tomorrow to discuss policing and public safety with Mayor Eric Adams. Biden has vowed to pour resources into putting more cops on the streets in New York City and other cities and towns that have seen an uptick in crime since the COVID pandemic began. Adams uh, has had a whirlwind first month in office, and like Biden, he is eager to be seen as aggressively tackling crime. In his latest article, Indy contributing editor and Eric Adams voter Nicholas Powers does a fascinating job of exploring the political and cultural sources of Adams' deep popularity in the Black community, what left activists have failed to understand about Adams and his supporters, and how our new mayor has already begun to betray his working class supporters in favor of his wealthy backers. The article is titled, is Eric Adams playing black voters? And it's the featured article right now on the independent.org website. And that's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T.org. Nick, welcome back to the show. So good to see both of you. Hi, what's up? Thank you. Hey, Nick, great to have you with us. Um, So in your article, you write, quote, one of the surest ways to succeed in politics is to tap into an underlying highly charged dream. How does that apply to Eric Adams? Yeah, when Eric Adams stepped into the spotlight, he also filled a very deep unanswered need. And the deep unanswered need was, you know, bullet pocked, scarred and scared communities of color in New York wanted safety, but they didn't want racist policing. And so when he stepped into the spotlight promising safety, but as a black man who was a, a police captain, police chief, that he was able to then answer both needs at the same time, at least in a symbolic way. So that's obviously the first kind of superficial political level. But on a deeper level, there is a long um, entrenched hunger that has been uh, for a father figure that has been created by the absence of fathers in black homes, black families, Latino homes, Latino families. And this absence of actual real fathers has been, in a sense, answered in kind of a symbolic ways with the representation of the strong black man, which is, you know, something that I've, that's a saying that I've, I've heard my whole life, but it's also something you've seen, you know, everything in movies like Malcolm X from 1992 to, you know, characters like Morpheus in the, in the Matrix. And what you see over and over again is this kind of um, fiction replacing the absence in reality. And so when when um, Eric Adams comes in and he presents himself as a strong black man, that he answers 
of, you know, many levels. On a political level, he answers the need of communities of color that have been deeply wounded by crime, but don't want the racist policing. But he also answers a deep cultural hunger to see a black man, in a sense, kind of come home and set the house right. Right. And and Nick, what do you think that the left has failed to understand about this appeal that Adams has? And why does it not understand only about Adams, but about the lives of many of his supporters who chose to vote for him? Yeah, it's yeah, because what Adams did is he exposed that there is a a, a widening gulf between, I would say, either the BLM rhetoric of and it's, it's a good analysis looking at the structural racism and also policing and housing, et cetera. And I think what the left misses is that people of color who are working class and are dealing with crime need answers and solutions now. And when they hear terms like abolition or defund the police, it doesn't make them or us feel safe because it sounds like you're taking away the one thing, the one kind of force that has a double-edged function in our lives. Yeah, the police hurt us. Yes, the police stop and frisk us. Yes, they make us feel tons of shame. And they also kill unarmed innocent people. But they also keep me somewhat safe from people who are mugging, from people who are rapes. You know, they keep me safe from murders to a certain extent. In other words, they provide at least some level of protection that people cannot give themselves. And so when they hear abolition, even though I think some of the technical policy ideas are very good, it just rubs folks the wrong way because they're like, how is this, you're taking away the one thing that's going to help me stay safe in the streets. So I, I think that there is, uh, that there's a deep cultural disconnect between, I would say, finally, a college-educated SAT-speaking left and a working class that speaks street and needs answers now, not in some kind of foreseeable future. Right. And, and uh, as you were saying in your, your article, you, you suggest that the Black Lives Matter movement has lost some of its resonance in the Black community including with people like yourself who joined in the marches and chanted, I can't breathe and hands up, don't shoot. And that uh, Adams has taken advantage of this. Um, um, We can talk about that some more in a moment, but first uh, we're going to hear some tape of uh, Patrice Cullors, co-founder of Black Lives Matter and former executive director of the Black Lives Matter Global Foundation. She appeared on Democracy Now! yesterday and Colors uh, supports the abolition of police, jails, and courts as we know them. In this exchange, she was asked by the show's host, Amy Goodman, about what should be done with people who commit heinous crimes, like the Minneapolis police officer who murdered George Floyd and the father and son in Georgia who chased down and killed Arma Arbery. Now, let's listen. So let me just ask a quick question that might be confusing for many. When you have someone like Derek Chauvin or the McMasters who are found guilty of murdering Ahmaud Arbery, uh, the McMichaels, um, a police officer, former police officer and his son, um, what should happen to them? Uh, should they be imprisoned? It's a good question, and it's a question that many abolitionists are thinking about and talking about. Um, But I want to say that abolition isn't uh, devoid of accountability. And so when we talk about abolition, we don't say that we aren't um, holding people accountable for harm that is caused. Um, But we don't think the current system of accountability actually meets the needs of the community that is harmed. Nick Powers? Yeah, just to be really quick, that was a total BS answer. 
And the way that Amy framed it, to be honest, wasn't helpful because she framed it with the images of white men hunting down unarmed black men and killing them. And I understand that that was the attention uh, and, and headline grabbing crimes. And but the reality is, one, is most crime is intraracial. It's with people that, you know, it's within your neighborhood Two, not all neighborhoods have the same type of crime or the same levels of crime. Black and Latino neighborhoods have much higher homicides, much higher higher uh, gun murders, much higher forms of uh, physical assault. So, and, and the people in our, like in my neighborhood, in, in these working class neighborhoods, want to feel safe. And so they need to, because they're worried about how the pressures of poverty, uh, fatherlessness, how just the rage that boils inside the heart that comes shooting out in the form of bullets, uh, especially between the young men, how do you stop that now? And in that answer, she didn't actually give any answer to what people need now. It was this kind of debate, theoretical musing, but it, it doesn't answer. And I think, I think you can't expect for working class audiences to really take you seriously if you can't respect the fact that they need answers now. And the abolitionist rhetoric has to have answers for now, rather than it being kind of a, you know, a, a, a college, you know, theory class. And so where does this all lead, Nick? Um, I think what's going to happen is that the next movement has to going to probably catalyze um, around not just protecting us from criminals, but protecting our children from becoming them. And the way to address that is to address the social inequality, which is the thing that Eric Adams has always consistently really refused to address. And so he, in a sense, is playing a shell game. You know, he takes class inequality and the violence that that causes kind of like a snowball effect. It starts off small, you know, starts off with childhood, it goes into adolescence, it gets larger and larger. And he always hides class inequality under race or victim blaming or law and order rhetoric. And so ultimately, I think the, the next powerful working class coalition, multiracial movement is, I think, not just saving like stops, you know, keeping us safe from crime, but keeping our kids safe from even becoming criminals or being involved in crime. And that means really like new jobs, you know, uh, new uh, trauma treatment centers, uh, drug rehabilitation centers, conflict negotiation skills revamping of the school pedagogy so kids get an emotional education, not just a technical education. Um, you know, actually having a larger vision for New York, what, you know, what are the massive projects that you could, you know, use huge amounts of new labor for that the, the, the next generation could feel they have skin in the game, that they've inherited the city. We have uh, 20 seconds. Away. Yeah, the last thing is that you need to give the youth the fact that they are going to inherit the city and own it and be in charge of it rather than just being dumped in its jails and warehoused because there's no use for them. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Uh, Nicholas Powers, contributing editor at The Independent, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI. Thank you. Have a great night. You bet. And I encourage everybody to go to independent.org. Nick's article is a feature article up right now. Really uh, fascinating read. A lot of different uh, points to to take in. And... uh, That's going to be our show tonight. Uh, We'll be uh, off next week, but we'll be back same time in two weeks on uh, Tuesday, February 15th. And uh, thanks to our uh, board operator, uh, Reggie Johnson, also uh, special assistance uh, for the show uh, from Renee Feltz. And uh, Amba, you do uh, almost all of our musical selections. Uh, What do we got for our uh, musical outro? Tonight, we're back with Miss Simone, Work Song by Nina Simone. 
any store. Hold it steady right there while I hit it. Well, I reckon that ought to get it been working and working, but I still got so terribly far to go. I heard the judge say five years on chain gang, you gonna go. I heard the judge say five years of labor. I heard my old man scream, Lord, you know. Hold it right there while I hear it. Well, I reckon that ought to get it been working. 